Well, good morning. Welcome back to the broadcast for Timer Network. I'm Jeff Snyder. This is BRNAM for Tuesday, August 8th, 2023. And our top story today, the PBGC's projections for its single and multi-employer programs remain strong. And joining me now to discuss this and a lot more, John Lowell is with October 3 Consulting. John, great to see you again. Thanks so much for joining us on the program this morning. Jeff, thanks for having me back again. Really happy to be here. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited. You know, I like talking defined benefit plans. I love talking pensions. They're, they're such an important part and have been a, an important part of our retirement system. John, the uh, PBGC, the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation, just issued its projections for single and multi-employer plan programs. And everything seems to indicate that everything's strong. Before we get into that, who is the PBGC for those watching? and myself included, who, who may not be administering pension plans? So Jeff, that's really a good question for a typical person who might be listening to this, somebody who doesn't live in the wild and wacky world of pensions every day. Um, so back in 1974, Congress passed it and uh, President Ford signed into law ERISA, the Employee Retirement Income Security Act. And part of ERISA was Title IV, which established the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation, or PBGC, as we usually know it. Um, what Congress was concerned about was all these companies offering pensions, but what happened if they weren't well enough funded and participants didn't actually get to benefit from them? So they established the PBGC, um, governmental agency, where the agency itself is entirely funded by premium payments from plan sponsors. There are two trust funds within the PBGC. One of them ensures single employer pension plans. So those are the type that are sponsored by one employer and also multi-employer pension plans. Those are jointly trusteed pensions that are for the benefit of certain groups of union employees. Those two trust funds operate independently. The money from one trust fund is not shared with the other trust fund. And as a result, as you mentioned, the study that came out the other day um, focuses on the two trust funds separately. Thanks for that definition, John, and, and actually history lesson. And um, as you were talking about 74 and ERISA, I was thinking about Studebaker, uh, which I think was one of the big cases that really helped facilitate uh, ERISA. But but John, let's talk about the PBGC report. Um, the the single uh, em employer program has always maintained a, a, um, a, a exceptional surplus. And it looks like uh, there was a lot of concern around multi-employer, the multi-employer program, but it looks like now it's in a really strong fiscal position. It's going to last for another 40 years. So by the time I'm 91 years old, it, it, it should be um, pretty, pretty fiscally sound. I want to get your reaction to both the single and the multi-employer plan uh, strength. Okay. So if we step back to what you said there, you know, honestly, the single employer trust fund has not always been in great shape, but it has been for the last number of years. And what's going on here? 
If we look back to another law that was passed, PPA, Pension Protection Act, in 2006, what that did is it escalated premiums fairly significantly in order to make sure that the PBGC single employer fund was sufficient to provide all the benefits as a couple of things were happening. One was we had just come out of a somewhat bad fiscal crisis, the uh, tech bubble starting right around the beginning of this century. So there were more companies then that had gone out of business than had uh, certainly for a while. Um, but we were also in a situation where some of the pensions that were out there were really, really presented high risks to the PBGC because they were poorly funded whereas most pensions really did not. So what PPA did is it did a couple of things. It raised what's known as the fixed rate premium. So that's a premium that every plan sponsor pays for every person that they cover in a plan. It also raised the variable rate premium. So that's a rate that is specifically related to the risk that that plan posed to the PBGC and not only did it raise the dollar amount, it also raised the percentage of the underfunding that plan sponsors had to pay. And it did that at twice the rate of inflation. Well, doing it at twice the rate of inflation suddenly took an underfunded program to what we now see in the most recent report that projects out 10 years for single employer plans, a really significantly overfunded trust plan. In fact, of all the scenarios that PBGC looked at in their forecast, um, it looks like they might not have found any where PBGC single employer trust fund is at risk in the next 10 years. So, so John, if I'm a plan sponsor, and that's somebody who sponsors a defined benefit pension plan, either, well, let's start with the single employer. Uh, what do I take away from this? And, and is there an opportunity to reduce the premium that, that single employer uh, pension plans are paying into the PBGC? It's like alphabet soup here. But you, you got the question. I do. And I may mispronounce it as well, just as you did. Um, so from a premium standpoint, there are proposals that are out there. There are proposals that are circulating among Capitol Hill staffers. There are some there are proposals that are coming from organizations like the ERISA Industry Committee, uh, American Benefits Council, and others that are suggesting PPA did its thing. The fund is really well-funded now. I mean, we're, it's in extremely good shape. Wouldn't this be a great time to not just reduce the rate at which premiums are increasing, but maybe lower them? or lower caps on them, or lower the rate at which they're pay being paid. So from a plan sponsor standpoint, unfortunately, over the last 10 to 15 years at least, a lot of plan sponsors have looked at PBGC premiums, not so much as insurance, but they've looked at it as a tax because the burden, the PBGC burden was so high. So what I see a lot of plan sponsors hoping for here and frankly, as a practitioner who thinks that pensions are a good thing for, uh, for Americans, generally speaking. So as a practitioner, I would love to see proposals 
not ones that will leave the PBGC insolvent or even risk it of insolvency, but bringing them back down from this huge surplus down to a point where the PBGC is, we'll say, nicely funded, but don't continue to use their, to use the words of plan sponsors, don't continue to tax those plan sponsors, perhaps unnecessarily. There are a lot of CFOs out there who say, you know, if I could get away from that burden, I would take my frozen plan that I'm trying to terminate and reopen it. Or I would take this situation where I already terminated a plan and consider starting up a new one, but they're not going to do it if this burden is too high. Well, John, that's a really good point. I want to carry that over into our next segment. We come back, we'll talk more about the PBGC premia and whether it could lead to new defined benefit pension plans. You're going to want to stay tuned right here on BRN AM. Imagine a new television network that will make you richer, healthier, and in control of your financial future. This network is for the policewoman in Nashville, Tennessee, the baker in Dubuque, Iowa, the teacher in Lexington, Kentucky. We want to make the idea of savings and retirement culturally relevant. But what do you see as a defining issue of the midterms? Especially for the smaller businesses. I mean, they are the lifeblood of the American economy. Featuring exclusive interviews, current affairs, and docu-series. 33 yeah. years old, you retired early. The philosophy is money only matters if it helps you live a life that you love. But you gotta start thinking about retirement as soon as you get in. The Broadcast Retirement Network will drive very high engagement with premium partnerships. So this isn't retirement and savings for your parents or grandparents. This is for all Americans. And we're gonna change the way you think about money. Welcome to the next frontier of retirement and savings. This is BRN, the Broadcast Retirement Network. Well, John, thanks so much for staying with us. Really appreciate you hanging around for segment number two this morning. Absolutely. Again, happy to be here, Jeff, and uh, wondering what it is that you're going to pose to me next. Uh, well, you know, I, we don't have any trick questions here on this network. Uh, maybe in some of the other ones they do, but you know, there's no agenda here. But John, let, let's. I want to follow up on the single employer conversation. Let's talk a little bit about multi. So collectively bargained plans, multi-employer. Um, what, what did you take away from the PBGC projection report? It's an interesting question, Jeff. And what we saw there was in most of the scenarios, the multi-employer trust fund remains in a pretty good position for the next 40 years. Um, the problem is there are some scenarios where it doesn't. And to the kind of unknowledgeable reader, they may be very confused about what's going on there. Why do so many of the scenarios put that trust fund in the black for the entire 40-year period? But why do the bad ones put it fairly far into the red? 
And what's going on there is, as some of your listeners probably know, there was what a lot of people referred to as a multi-employer plan bailout from the American Rescue Plan Act. Plans that were particularly poorly funded got what the law calls special financial assistance. And that special financial assistant was supposed to keep those plans solvent for at least 30 years. Now, that's great. There were a lot of actuaries who did really good work determining how much money each of those plans needed to stay solvent for 30 years. But as actuaries know, and as followers of actuaries know, every actuary makes actuarial assumptions, and they do it based on their education and their training and experience. And they really do try to make the most accurate assumptions they can, but they're just that, they're assumptions. And all we are sure about about assumptions is they're never going to be exactly right. So if these plans, particularly some of the really big ones, underperform those assumptions, then the special financial assistance ultimately will not be enough to keep those plans solvent for 30 years, and the multi-employer trust fund will be in trouble. But on what we might call the baseline projections, that trust fund is in good shape. Yeah, so there's still a lot of work to do. Uh, John, I want to ask you about uh, going back to the single employer um, projections. If Congress or whomever were to lower the PBGC premia, I'm not even sure it's Congress. I guess you'll tell me if I'm right or wrong. But uh, could we see a renaissance? Um, so if, if these, uh, these, this tax, as you put it, the premia is a tax, it's a headwind to maintaining and creating new plans. If that were to come down, could we see a, a resurgence in, in defined benefit pension plans? That's a great question, Jeff. And you know, the short answer, I think, is yes. Um, one of the things I base that on is a survey that was released by one of the major consulting firms within the last couple of weeks. Um, they surveyed CFOs. So these are going to be people who are either going to be the advocates for or the blockers of either reopening existing yet frozen pension plans that companies are considering terminating or starting whole new pension plans where one doesn't exist. 88% of the CFOs in that survey said that they would consider reopening their currently frozen pension plans. 88% is a big number. Yeah. When you drill down deep into what they said though, one of the things that was really getting in the way, one of the things that was kind of a craw uh, in the side there was if we could only get rid of at least some of this PBGC burden, they understand that the PBGC insures pensions and it does need to be funded. But right now it's got so much money. Can we reduce that a little bit so we can actually help the American worker? And one of the things that that would do, honestly, is if more pensions start up, then the PBGC gets more premiums. It gets more revenue. And presumably for plans that at least at the outset are low-risk plans to PBGC. So this is this is kind of win-win. It's something that would be good to have happen um, as an individual, whether I think of myself just as an American worker or as an American worker who happens to be an actuary. This is a good thing. Yeah, we're not even talking about this is prospectively. We're not saying take the whole trust and just refund the money. Keep the trust as it is, maintain it. But this is on a go forward basis. 
John, last question before I let you let you off the hook and back into the actuary land, which I, I heard is kind of like Candyland. Uh, John, if I'm a participant, why should I care about the PBGC projection report? So somebody who's in a pension plan, um, they're in a multi-employer pension plan, they're in a single employer pension plan. Why should they care about this projection report? I think there are two things here, Jeff. Um, one of them is the primary intention or intent of the existence of the PBGC. It's there to ensure pensions of American workers. If you're working for a company that provides a pension for you, and for whatever reason, that company um, no longer can fund its pension plan, the company goes out of business, for instance, and the plan is terminated, it'll be terminated more than likely by the PBGC, and the PBGC will pick up your pension that the plan can't. So and as an American worker, this means you can really rely on getting that pension that you've accrued, at least for almost all um, Americans who are in these plans. The other reason is, you know, to the extent that what I said earlier might actually come true, that we do have more pensions. That's great for workers. One of the things that American workers are asking for the most these days is guaranteed lifetime income. There are lots of ways to get guaranteed lifetime income, but there is no way that is as efficient as doing it through an employer-sponsored pension. So from my standpoint, thinking about it, what's best for the employees here, what's best for the employees is getting these pensions and getting the guaranteed lifetime income, not having to worry about outliving their wealth in retirement. Well, John, uh, always great to catch up with you. Thanks for helping break it down. You know, I read the report, but not all of it. I'd read the executive summary, but you put it, you broke it down in the clear and, cl and clear English, which was great. Great to see you. Thanks so much for joining us. And we look forward to having you back on the program again very soon. Thank you, Jeff. It's been my pleasure. That wraps up this episode of BRNAM. Have a topic of interest, someone you think we should talk to, drop us a line. Don't forget, for all the latest curated news and lifestyle, wellness, finance, tech, so much more, all in one place. Check out today's edition of our daily newsletter, The Morning Pulse. Want to search our archives, check out our latest content, then visit our website. We're back again tomorrow for another edition of BRNAM. Until then, I'm Jeff Snyder. Stay safe, keep on saving, and don't forget, roll with the changes. Now is your opportunity to co-create content around any topic on the first lifestyle and wellness network. Reach a global audience through our platform and co-own exclusive branded content. All of our programs are available on demand and also as audio only podcasts so you can take us on the go. Broadcast Retirement Network, available anytime, anywhere, and on any device.